Welcome to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large of EdSource. Well, this week we'll be bringing you a special podcast from our annual convention held at the Oakland Convention Center. We thought we'd play a few minutes from the opening address by Pedro Nogueira, who is a distinguished professor at UCLA. He's been a long-term advocate on behalf of particularly young people on the margins, and it was great to have Pedro on the podium. In 1990, I was a brand new professor at UC Berkeley. I was recently elected to the school board in Berkeley, and I was teaching at a local continuation high school all at the same time. And uh, I don't recommend that usually to new professors. But uh, I was kind of talked into it because they said, well, since you're not leaving, you should stay and do something like serve on the school board. And I did. And one of the things we did was we would hear expulsion cases. Um, The board would uh, serve as a kind of quasi-judicial body that would hear cases. And in almost all cases, the students that came before us had done something really bad. But in almost every case, the students who came before us were among our most vulnerable students. Students in special education, students in group homes, students in foster care. I recall one incident in particular uh, of a group of girls, ninth grade girls, who had been involved in some really terrible violence at the high school, uh, beating up other girls for the crime of being too cute. And, and beating them up in a terrible way. Uh, some, some girls were so badly injured they had to be hospitalized. So as I read the case, I thought to myself, well, this is going to be easy. This is going to be, I won't have to wait a long time to figure out what's the right thing to do here. They've clearly done something terrible. They need to be punished severely. And then we met the girls and heard their stories. And it became so clear that each one of them was a victim. Each one of them had been crying out for help much earlier on that they never received. And the fact that they lashed out at these other girls was really just another indicator of how badly uh, marginalized they were. Uh, I start with that story because I would say that in many of our schools, we disproportionately punish the children with the greatest needs. And if you think about it for just a little while, you'll realize that we often punish them because of those unmet needs. Children who don't have supportive homes or don't have stable homes, often are angry and insolent and difficult in school, just as any of us might be without stable homes. Working with Austin Butner now in Los Angeles, they're trying to bring eyeglasses to schools. Their estimate is about 40% of low-income kids need eyeglasses. Hard to read if you can't see. There are so many unmet needs and we still treat it as though this were an outlier issue. When anyone who knows California knows these are our children. As a nation, we have uh, embraced slogans as policy, like no child behind. I often point out to people that that slogan came from the Children's Defense Fund. (laughs) It didn't mean test the children as frequently as possible. It was about health and nutrition and well-being. But somehow, No Child Behind didn't mean that kids wouldn't get eyeglasses or get access to a dentist or a social worker. 
And so consequently, we, despite the policies, and every student succeeds, it's just the latest example, we still don't have policies that allow us to meet the needs of our most vulnerable kids. So I want to applaud EdSource for making this the theme of the conference, because I think we'll only begin to address this issue if we take it from the margin to the center and acknowledge this, these are our kids. Now, again, it's important to put this in a national context. It's not simply a California problem. This is an American problem. And all across America, we see we, child poverty rates are incredibly high. California has among the highest in the nation. We have large numbers of kids who don't have access to good health insurance, good access to preschool. Large numbers of kids, particularly black and Latino kids, who are languishing in our most struggling schools. And we're one of few countries in the world that continues to spend less money on the neediest kids than the wealthiest kids. And I often point out to people, the only people who say money doesn't matter are people with lots of money. Because right? usually in the districts where there are a few resources, they readily say we need more. Now, it's also true they may not know what to do with those resources sometimes. And we're seeing that now with the LCAP funds. But the fact of the matter is we know that there are lots of kids in need and uh, lots of kids that are not getting their needs. Uh, Ed Trust has been doing great work on shining the light on these issues and pointing out that these are California's kids. Because in California, not only do we have large numbers of kids who are poor, but we have large numbers who are English learners and a growing population of kids who are black and Latino. So this is our future. And the question is, what are we doing to ensure that our schools have a chance to meet the needs of the children who will become our future parents, our voters, our workers, and I don't think right now we are using the research that is available to us to do what is possible. Now, I recognize right away that we are faced with enormous constraints, particularly at the local level. Our schools are overwhelmed by the needs. And we are one of few societies that expect schools to solve this by themselves. Canadians don't expect that. They actually do provide supports outside of school to make sure schools serving poor children receive the help they need. In this country, we have a schools alone strategy. And therefore, the schools that serve the children with the greatest needs are the schools that tend to always be failing. But there's a lot about that when we start to unpack it that we know that there are certain kids that are at much greater need and therefore much more likely to drop out of school or to fail in school. And given what we know about these children, the question becomes, what do we do to provide targeted support? I'm working with several high schools right now in Los Angeles that are serving large numbers of unaccompanied minors. And I was in a classroom recently with a teacher who is totally unprepared because in our schools, we typically assign the least qualified teachers to work with the most challenging kids, despite the fact there's no research to support that strategy. And he's a brand new teacher struggling, and he's teaching these children, some of whom are 14, as many as 17, 18, all in ninth grade, many of them not literate in their native language, but he's teaching them as though he's teaching first graders, with dittos, giving them basic words. And I tried to explain to him, I said, although these kids may not have a lot of education, formal education, because they didn't go to school regularly in their own countries, they're not dumb kids. 
These are incredibly resilient kids who traveled from Central America and made to California without a train ticket, having to navigate some of the most dangerous people and places along the way. These are incredibly smart, resilient kids you have before you. And he was not sure what to do with that because all he could see was what they couldn't do. And I would say that that focus on the deficits, that focus on the needs, prevent us from building resilience in these children because you can't build resilience if you don't see the strengths. And so, yep, there are lots of kids out there that we know, based upon their backgrounds and based upon past patterns, are likely to fail, but there's also lots of research about how to make failure less likely. And so part of what I want to suggest is that once we acknowledge that we can't allow the teacher to do this by themselves, which is what we've been doing, that we actually do need social workers and health workers in schools or working with schools, then it forces us to think, okay, how do we utilize those resources effectively to start to build a support system? That was Pedro Nagara who gave our keynote speech at the EdSource Symposium in Oakland this week. One of the issues we looked at at the symposium was the challenge of schools who have large numbers of homeless children, which is becoming an increasing problem in California. Across the state, there are just over 200,000 students who meet the legal definition of being homeless by living in shelters, cars, hotels, mobile homes, or out of economic hardship, they aren't living in their own homes, but with friends or relatives. And the housing crunch in the San Francisco Bay Area has rendered at least 15,000 students in kindergarten through high school homeless. Sarah Tan, our producer, talked to one teenager who knows all about not having a place to call home. Meet Crystal. She's a 17-year-old with long black hair, a penchant for dangly earrings, and is eager to start her senior year of high school. But what makes Crystal unlike most other teens is that she's homeless and living at Oakland's Dreamcatcher Youth Shelter. I've been in and out of my own home for the last five years. I just wanted to take control of my own life, and I did. Crystal is not alone. In the last two years, the number of reported homeless students across California has jumped by 20%. In Oakland, it has soared from 400 in 2014 to over 900 last year. Crystal's been on her own for the last several years following problems at home. She's lived with friends and for a brief stint on the street and has attended a handful of schools around the Bay Area. It was really frustrating and hard. There was nights I had to cry to fall asleep after all the things like there's so much things you have to do, like provide for yourself, go to school, get a place, get a car, insurance. Five months ago, a friend told Crystal about the Dreamcatcher Youth Shelter in Oakland, run by Alameda Family Services. The shelter offers a safe place for teens 13 to 18 who want to finish high school. But there's one wrinkle. She can only stay for 21 days at a time. The idea is that the shelter is just a temporary stop on the way to more permanent housing. Dreamcatcher is helping Crystal get into a new school. Last year, she was at McClyman's High in West Oakland, but now she's looking at Sojourner Truth Independent Study, a district high school in East Oakland, where she could follow a study plan and get a job to support herself. When I tried to register for school, they were like, no, you need an adult. I told them I'm homeless. They just kept sending me places. They needed a guardian. They needed like proof of where you lived. And like I didn't have it. I'm homeless. 
It's a misty August morning, and I meet up with Crystal on what was supposed to be her first day at her new school. I woke up so early today. It supposedly is my orientation. They told me to come in at 8, but I'm not exactly sure what they said. I'm lightweight forgetful. <laughs> At Sojourner Truth, students are just clearing out of the hallway as Crystal makes her way to the main office. But because Crystal is a special education student, she has an Individualized Education Program, or IEP, and she may need to re-register and start the process all over again. With her today is her caseworker, Kavya Parthaman. She said that was for orientation. She just got signed through McKinney Mento. She's been assigned where? She's been assigned here through McKinney-Mento, um, and they said that there's an orientation for her on Thursday. Do you know who you spoke to? Mm -hmm. The McKinney-Vento Homeless Assistance Act is the federal law that requires school districts to ensure that homeless youth have access to education and other services. But as Crystal found out, school officials don't always know what it is. In fact, there's a wide gap statewide between districts that are actively helping homeless students and those that don't. We started the school stuff like way early on, like March, um, but then she had to leave. Um, her coming back, you have to restart the process. She's been taking it well, though. I think she's um, excited to go to school, wants to go to school, wants to go to college. Her caseworker says getting homeless students set up at school is hard, even for someone like Crystal, who is really motivated. Crystal's ready to go to school, right? A lot of our youth might not be, but that's because they're like, this is like my sixth school in like the past two years. Like, why would I go again and just be told that I can't finish? Once Crystal is enrolled, she hopes to graduate high school next year, secure stable housing, and go on to community college. Well, I wanted to be a lot of things, military, vet social worker, but my family, like, they turned that down. They made me look at the negative, and I'm trying now. I'm trying, and hopefully it'll go my way. Crystal was not admitted at Sojourner Truth, but she is attending classes at Next Step Learning Center, a nonprofit that partners with a charter to help students earn a high school diploma. Since her stay at the shelter, Crystal now has a foster mother and will soon be moving in with her. She's also interviewing for a retail job. She's hoping she finally has the help to get on with the rest of her life. But other homeless students who don't have access to these services may not be so lucky. For EdSource, I'm Sarah Tan. That was a really interesting report, Sarah. Thank you. You know, a little-known fact is that homeless students are one of four groups, along with foster students, low-income students, and English learners, who are priorities under the local control funding formula. Districts are supposed to address their needs. So... Hopefully, by making them a priority, these students will no longer be invisible. Well, that wraps it up for this week in California education. We brought you a special podcast based on our annual symposium held in Oakland this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Our producer is Sarah Tan, who brought us that report. See you next week. <laughs>